All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 5. So to give you just a little bit of, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, so just to remind you of the context of this book, uh, the church in Corinth is basically a mess. Uh, It's just, it's disordered. Uh, There's a lot of internal division where they're kind of, They've got their preferred kind of celebrity teacher, if I could use that word, and they, they, they group themselves by that teacher, and they argue about who's the best, and, which is not that foreign from our current world, is it? I mean, I like this preacher. He's the best. You're like, no, he's terrible. He's, a, he's a, basically a heretic. I like this guy, and there's all this kind of competition, right? But there's also some other issues. And Paul is addressing them one at a time, okay? And the issue we're going to encounter this morning is there's apparently a guy in the church who's involved in some pretty crazy sexual immorality, okay? And Paul has already told them in apparently another letter that we don't have, he's told them to deal with it. And they apparently have not dealt with it. Okay, so we're now in the, at least the second mention from Paul to this church about this situation, okay? And we're going to, so let's just get into this. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, talk about it, and we'll just kind of step our way through it, okay? So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at the first two verses. It says, it is actually reported, so notice the tone, like he, he's in, he can't believe it, okay? That's his tone. I cannot believe. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Put that together. A man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, so in the notes, by the way, if, you, if you're online, there should be a link to the notes in the description of the video. If you're here, there's some printed off in the back. In the notes, I've given you a few scriptures that expressly prohibit this exact sin. I'm not going to read them because I feel like it's fairly obvious, okay, that, that this incestuous relationship, to put it, I'm trying to put it carefully. Paul puts it carefully. I'm going to be careful about it. I think you can put together what's going on here, Okay. That this is not even something that the pagans in the world would tolerate. Even people who are not Christians and don't live according to the Jewish law would say, that's insane. Okay? And you say, and then this is happening inside your church. And not only that, but you're being proud about it. This is, he cannot understand. He says, you're arrogant. Now, I don't know what they're arrogant about if if it's, this is just a, like if they feel like, well, we're being really open-minded and we're proud of it in that sense, or if they're just generally proud about how spiritual they are, yet they're tolerating this lifestyle in their church. It's unclear which it is, but at the very least, they are arrogant and proud with this obvious thing going on in their church that not even the world would tolerate, okay? And Paul is indignant about it. Their pride was heavily attached to this situation, and Paul is outraged. And it's hard to tell, I want to point out as we read, it's hard to tell who Paul is more upset with. 
I think he's more upset with the church than he is with the person who's committing the sin. That's really interesting. His outrage is not just that someone is doing this. His outrage is that the church is standing there like with their chest puffed out and their nose up in the air about how great they are with this going on. All right? So let's keep reading. Verses 3 to 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so Paul's phrasing here is really interesting. It's very clearly based, based foundationally on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, which we covered months ago, where Jesus talks about church discipline. And we talked about the, I don't know if you remember, the, the ever-expanding circles of inclusion where you confront someone on their sin privately and eventually you can get to the point where they're cast out, right? Paul is basing this statement on that teaching, all right? And he says... I have already told you. I've already pronounced judgment. I've already said this, what needs to be done. You haven't done it. He needs to be cast out for what purpose? Cast out being turned over to Satan so that he can be restored. Basically put out underneath the judgment of God out into the world, no longer pronounced a Christian or a part of the church so that his life will go sideways so that hopefully his heart will soften and he'll repent and come back. That's the goal. Now, a lot of people feel like this is harsh. Right? I mean, this is not a good day for anybody. Like, this is hard. We're talking about taking somebody that everybody knows and everybody has included as a part of the family and putting them out in the cold, spiritually speaking. Paul addresses this and these next verses says, verse 6 through 13, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you don't know what leaven is, it's yeast, like you put in bread, okay? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you, are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, the reason why this is so serious is that this person is like a little bit of yeast that you put in a lump of dough, and that little bit of yeast permeates the whole thing, and it causes the dough to rise. If you mix a little yeast into the dough and stir it up and let it sit, 
it becomes impossible to get the yeast out. Okay? So he says, that's what this is like. And you're letting this yeast sit in the pile of dough, and it's just going to multiply, and it affects the whole thing. So get it out, is what he says. Why? Because Christ died for the church. The church has been sanctified. It is sacred. So yeah, this is a drastic solution. It really is. It's sobering. If you've ever been in a church where this has happened, and you've been to that meeting, it is deeply sobering. And one of the things that happens is you realize that the church is actually kind of a big deal. That's what you re- realize in those moments is this is not a game. This is not just a club that you join and pay your dues. Right? That you just come and hang out with like-minded people who have the same values as you and it's a nice place to raise your kid. And they have a sweet youth group where my kids can go and have a positive influence in their life. And, and that's all this is. This is kind of a club. It's a religious club that makes everybody feel good and it holds the community together. This is way more than that. Paul says Christ died for the church. This is sacred and she should not be defiled. Notice the clear distinction he makes between someone living this way that claims to be a Christian and someone who lives the same way but does not claim to be a Christian. He says, if you, if you want to go to the world and rid it of all just take one sin, sexual immorality, you're just, you're just going to have to not, you just have to leave the planet. <laughs> like, there's, there's no, you, you can't, like, that's God's job. Like, you, we can rail against the world and all the sin in the world, and it will not become any less sinful after we've railed against it. That's God's job. What Paul is concerned about is the church because the church is sacred, the world is not. It seems like, historically speaking, quite often the church has been more passionate about yelling at the world about all their sinfulness while not keeping their house clean, while not being concerned about the sin inside the house. We feel self-righteous in our railing against the sin in the world and ignore the things God is provoking us about inside the church. But in here, in the family, we have a responsibility to each other to bear one another's burdens, to say, hey, you're drifting off from the path. Don't drift off. Come back onto the path. What 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 are you doing? I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. So we should say something about the church discipline process. And I don't think this is the main point, by the way. But it brings up some questions. Um, Number one, I got five things. We could do like 20. We talk about this in our LHC 101 thing that we do more in detail just for information purposes. But I'm just going to give you five things that I think are important to note. One, casting someone out of the church community is not something that should be done unless there is a clear and willful refusal to repent from repeated sin. If you look at Paul's descriptions here, he's talking about not someone who swindles, but a swindler. The descriptions he gives, this is is something you have chosen as a way of life. Okay? 
So a lot of people think church discipline happens when you do something really bad. I did something really bad, so now I'm out. But if I don't do something really bad, and you create this weird scale that you haven't really thought through, but that's your perception. That's not the issue. The issue is repentance or unrepentance. That's the issue in the whole New Testament, by the way. We're all sinners. The issue is not who's a sinner and who's not, because we all are. Jesus died for that, okay? The issue is who's repentant and who's not. So if you're like, man, I, I've got a sexual immorality problem, and you're wrestling against it, and you're walking in repentance, and you're, you're trying to deal with it and facing it, that's a different situation than this, okay? That's number one. So it's the refusal to repent of sin and receive the grace needed to change. That's the primary issue. Number two, Jesus lays out an important principle in Matthew 18 where there are repeated attempts to call a person to repentance involving the fewest people possible. What Paul describes here is what happens when those attempts fail. So in many ways, this is a failure of church discipline, in a sense. This is what happens when your, you know, your brother comes to you and says, hey, I think your relationship with your stepmom's a little off, right? Maybe you should quit that. And you go, no, no, it's cool, man. It's cool. It's what people do, right? That, and that, that attempt has failed. That's when you get to this point. Number three, this is always done humbly with great care given to get rid of the log in your own eye before pointing out the splinter in another's. But it must be done. We tend to go one way. Well, who am I? Who am I to bring this up with my brother or sister in the church. I've noticed some issue in their life or I suspect something going on. Who am I? I've got my own issues. I'm not going to say anything. Paul would be like, stop. He would say to you, stop it. <laughs> stop doing that. The church is sacred. Take it seriously. Take your relationship with them seriously. Take them seriously. Take their soul seriously. Like, don't make this into a game that's not a big deal. At the same time, be humble. <laughs> Get the log out of your own eye. Be, don't, this is not about the morality police where you're going around going like, hey, I don't like the way you're acting, buddy. Don't, I'm going to bring you up on charges. Like, that's not the attitude. The attitude is humility and care and love for one another. Number four, it's the responsibility of all Christians to care for one another enough to lovingly confront obvious sin in the lives of your brothers and sisters lest it spread and spoil their entire lives. This is what we do for each other. Who else if not you? Who else? God's placed you in one another's lives in part for this reason. Hebrews talks about this very clearly. All of us are prone to wander and drift off. And we need each other in order not to do that. Just your presence in the room with your fellow brothers and sisters in the church is itself a corrective, isn't it? There are certain things you just don't say out loud because you know they're just wrong. And the people around you would look at you like, what, what are you talking that way for? It keeps your tongue in check. It keeps your heart in check. Just being around one another. How much more so if we were open with each other about our faults, about our sin, about our weaknesses, and willing to just say to other person, hey, you know that's wrong. Come on, come on, man. I love you. Let me help you. 
This is how we avoid getting to this point where Paul is having to write a letter about an incestuous relationship in the church that they're tolerating. All right, number five, the goal of casting someone out of the community is that they would come to repentance and come back home. It's not like punishment. It's not like we're just mad at you, so we're going to reject you. This says we, don't, we cannot confidently say because of what you're doing, we cannot confidently say you are a Christian. This, doesn't, this is not what Christians do. Therefore, we are not going to stand around and pretend like you are a Christian. We're going, we don't think you are. And so we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. So I'm going to witness to you. You need the gospel. Because Christians don't do this. And Christians respond when someone says this is sin. Christians repent. Christians are humble. This is what Christians do, and you're not acting like that. Okay, that's the goal. All right. I think it's very interesting to compare this chapter, chapter 5, to the chapters, chapters 12 to 14, which we'll get to eventually. In chapters 12 to 14, we find that when they gather together for worship, most of the people are having some pretty intense spiritual experiences. This is interesting to think about. These are the same people. Okay, the people who are, have been ta- knowingly tolerating and perhaps even embracing this sexual immorality in the church are also the people having some pretty awesome meetings where everybody's speaking in tongues, there's lots of singing, there's lots of prophecy, there's lots of power, there's lots of uh, people are having intense spiritual experiences with God and with, with each other in these amazing... We would look at their meetings and most of us would call it revival. We would, we would put it on the internet... And, and put it on, on Twitter and Facebook and talk about how amazing these meetings are. Everyone should come. And people would come and they'd be standing room only. We'd have to have like 10 services a week because of all the power and all the amazing things that are going down in our meetings. Meanwhile, dude on the third row, whatever row no one's sitting on right now, is doing stuff with his mother-in-law. And everybody knows it, and they're cool with it. Do you see the bizarre contradiction that that is? That's what's going down in Corinth. This kind of contradiction is nothing new, right? It still exists in churches today. Many have seen these kinds of contradiction. Maybe not something as kind of jarring and shocking as incest but we've seen the contradictions certainly greed covetousness sexual immorality anger pride etc the other things paul lists out there we've all seen that contradiction and said that the solution is to get rid of the gifts and other outward expressions of spiritual life in the name of authenticity that's one of the reactions i see to this kind of thing we see this we see the the power and the awesome meetings, and then we see the poor character of those leading and the poor character of those involved, and we go, the answer must be to get rid of the gifts. Stop having those kinds of things happen so that we can all just be real. But Paul doesn't respond that way. We'll talk about this more when we get to those chapters, but I think it's important to point out here at what I think is the height of their brokenness 
in this church. It's not the division. Division's bad. It's this. The unwillingness to do church discipline. And they, Paul doesn't say, stop speaking in tongues, stop prophesying. He said, I wish that all of you would, prophes- would speak in tongues. He encourages the gifts. He puts some parameters around them, which we'll get to. But I think it's important to note that. Paul's response is not to say, stop being so spiritual. His response is, deal with your character. <laughs> deal with the sin. We'll see the same kind of approach Even right here, Paul's solution here is to deal with the sin, get the sin out of the church, keep the yeast out of the dough. That's what Paul exhorts him to do. So Paul's measure of spirituality, this is one of the big things of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and it's one of the great failures of that church, is that Paul's measure of spirituality always ends up in a list of works of the flesh on one side and fruits of the Spirit on the other. We went through this a couple weeks ago. I showed you over and over and over again, that's how Paul sees things. Being a mature Christian is, is means exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Being a Spirit-filled Christian or walking by the Spirit means the way you know if someone's filled with the Spirit is not if they're speaking in tongues, it's if they exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. That's spiritual maturity over and over and over again. And the definition of spiritual immaturity is all these, this list of sins that he always gives the same thing here. So pride, jealousy, anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, etc. are works of the flesh. The Holy Spirit will never produce those things. Never, ever, 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 ever produce those things. You cannot be full of the Holy Spirit and do those things. You must be full of the flesh, not the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, humility, kindness, generosity, etc. are from the Holy Spirit. So while the Corinthian church is claiming to be spiritual people, based on their giftedness and their supernatural experiences, Paul tells them they're measuring by the wrong list. They're measuring success or maturity or whatever you want to put it, spirituality, with the wrong criteria. And they're proud. He said, your your boasting is really not good. (laughs) Like, maybe y'all need to take a minute Maybe cancel the next service and just get together and repent. Right? You're, you're having great meetings, and even that's questionable. But what about this? What about real maturity? What about your character? Character matters way more than giftedness. I'd rather have a church full of people that are ungifted, unattractive duds that have a lot of character and are faithful and joyful and loving and kind and patient than people who are shallow and angry and greedy and jealous and covetous, full of sexual immorality and pride, but have tons of gifting and look good on stage and know how to put some words together and sing good songs and are really proficient and really great. Now, it's great if you can have both. Some people have both, and that's just, I don't understand those people. That's, those, are, those are rare birds, but, and that's great. If you've got both, praise God for you. But Paul's looking at the character, and he says, that's the main thing. So when Paul opens this letter, I think this is astounding. 
I want to I I I kind of increase the contrast of the contradiction for a second, okay? Because this is where the gospel comes in. If you remember back to Paul's opening to just this letter, and just about every letter he writes is this way. Paul already knows about the guy sleeping with his mom. Okay? When he opens 1 Corinthians and he writes this greeting, he already knows that. And here's what he says. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. To the church of God that is in current, Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at what he uses to describe them. Sanctified, saints, recipients of the grace of God, not lacking in any gift, sustained to the end, guiltless, Is he just buttering them up? Is he just being nice? Not Paul. He's not the sort, right? He's telling the truth. Paul isn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. This is the central pillar of Paul's theology. God saves sinners. God, the almighty God, the holy one of Israel, the king of kings, lord of worlds, the the creator of the universe, the sanctifier of all things, the standard of what holiness means. That God does the saving. He saves, he redeems, he restores, he rescues. Who? Sinners. Not sinners who are no longer sinners, not used to be sinners. Sinners, his enemies, wicked, broken, rebellious ones, the unrighteous. That's who he saves. We get into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we remain in the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. At every stage, it is God who is saving us, the sinner. Who do you have to be for God to save you? A sinner. That's who you got to be. He didn't come. Jesus said it. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the whole, I came for the broken. I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. So every single church, including Living Hope Church, is a massive, glaring contradiction. Christians get accused all the time of being hypocrites, and we are. We are. We are staggering contradictions. We're a collection of sinners that he calls saints. And what God says about the sinner is what stands. When God says, you're a saint, and you you can say all you want, no, I'm not, I'm a sinner. He says, I said you're a saint, that's what you are. 
Period. Who's going to win that argument? He says, and I'll prove it to you. I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to make you into a saint. And I'm going to take all the sin out of you and actually make you righteous. That is what you're going to be. And it's what I declare you to be right now. That's how Paul can say these things to people who are doing, who are blowing it on epic proportions. We're not blowing it this bad. That makes me feel good. But we are blowing it. You tell me there's not some greed in here somewhere? Some covetousness, jealousy, division, bad attitudes. I'm not making eye contact with anybody. I'm not thinking about anybody. I'm just taking a wild guess. <laughs> we are walking contradictions. And it's not good. Okay? Don't make, don't, don't make a mistake in thinking that it's, so that means, you know, I can be arrogant and proudful, prideful and boast. You don't get to boast. Your boasting is not good, Paul would say. Get the sin out. Get the leaven out. Get the yeast out of the dough now. Get it out. Why? Because the church is sacred and you're saints. You're guiltless. God has said it about you, so act like it. If you're not willing to act like it, maybe you're not in the family. That's the point. So every church is a walking contradiction. We are constantly grasping at the wrong things to bolster our image to each other. We're constantly measuring success and maturity by the wrong standards, getting our encouragement by the wrong things. The last thing we want to do is look at the fruit because the fruit is a mixed basket of good and bad, beautiful and gross, holy and wicked. The fruit of your life. Imagine it in a little basket like you've been out fruit picking. And in that basket, like you put all the good stuff on the top where everybody can see it. I'm so joyful. Look at that nice, perfect apple. Underneath all of that is some gross, rotten stuff. Yucky stuff. You're just trying to cover the stench of it all the time. It's a mixed basket. Yet, God declares to us, you are sanctified saints, recipients of the grace of God, not lacking any gifts, sustained to the end and guiltless. That is what we are. And it is ultimately why this sin issue in the church is such a big deal. Because it's absolutely contrary to what God says you are. And it's why Paul is astounded. He can't, he's like, you must not understand the gospel. You must not understand who God says you are. Or if you, because if you did, this would, this, this would be as shocking to you as it is to me. You would be as concerned about this as I am because it is so incongruent with what the church is and what, who you are and who God says you are and who this person says they are. It would surprise you the way it surprises me. And the fact that it doesn't surprise you and doesn't shock you is concerning, not just because of the sin, but because of what it says about what you understand about what God says about you. So this is what I want you to see. God saves sinners. And because God saves sinners, the church is a big deal. Because Christ died for the church. 
This is a, bit, a church that is, refuses to do church discipline is undefined. It's what provides the borders or the definitions. Like think like a coloring sheet that your kids use. Maybe some adults like I like the color sometimes too. The lines on the sheet that defines the image. That's where church discipline lives. If you're unwilling to do that, you don't know where the borders are and you have no shape as a church. None. And the churches that don't do it are ultimate something like this is going on. Guaranteed. Because there's no borders, there's no definition. And so we are defined as a church but I don't think that means we get off scot-free. We're all mixed bags. But God loves us anyway. Amen? Why don't you stand up and I want to pray for us. My hope is that you will be both convicted about your sin, take it seriously and take each other seriously, but also basking in what God says about you anyway. Okay? Because that's where the power to overcome sin lies in you, right? That's where it is. Shame will not get you any farther than the parking lot in terms of dealing with sin. What will get you past the parking lot in terms of dealing with sin is recognizing that this is not who you are. This is what God says about you. What God says about you is you're a saint. Okay? And when you get that, then dealing with your sin is a different thing. And so I want to encourage you this morning that if you're bound by some, what we, what is often called a besetting sin, something that you've been struggling with and you just can't seem to, maybe there's an anger thing and sometimes out of your mouth comes like rage, hurtful, raging words or whatever it is. Start by letting someone else bear underneath the burden with you and confessing it to them and asking a brother, a sister, one of our elders, any, somebody to just talk with you, confess it to them, this is where I'm at, and get some prayer and get some, and follow up with them. Make a friend. <laughs> Make a friend and share it with them. Take it seriously. But don't, don't leave the gospel behind when you do it. Amen? I want to pray for you for that. God, I just ask you right now to, that I am sure that as I've been talking, people here in this room and listening online, God, I'm sure there's the Holy Spirit has pricked them about a place of obvious contradiction in their life. Where they're living one way and, con and, and it's contrary to the gospel, it's contrary to what you say about them. And God, I just pray right now you give them the courage to put shame aside and to just confess their sin one to another. To reach out and use the community of faith that they're in to address it. And God, I pray that in this moment, that the enemy, Satan, would not be allowed to lie to them and say, this is who you are. This is what you are. But God, instead they would hear you say, just like Paul says in these verses, you said through Paul, sanctified, guiltless, recipient of the grace of God, sustained to the end. God, they would hear those words and embrace them as their identity this morning. God, I pray that 
you would fill this church with power. Power to overcome sin and power to work miracles. God, I pray that the gifts of the Spirit would overflow in this church. God, that we would not restrict them out of fear of being inauthentic. But God, at the same time, God, we want to be people of deep, serious character. Would you work those both those things in us this morning? In the name of Jesus. Amen.